Come on, you can do better than that. Come on, we're excited for our kids. Every week we know that's just another week where, where more truth just gets planted deep into their life. It's going to bear much fruit. We just we so appreciate all of our child care workers. Don't you appreciate our child care workers? Nursery, workshop, playhouse. They do such an amazing job, such an amazing job. Would you know we're in a series called 50-Day People. And the idea of this series, I, I think this series is... We, we came in, in October of 2007, so this fall will be five years. I, I think this series has sown more into the culture of our church than any series that we've done together as a church family. If, if you're new to the church and, and you're just kind of jumping in, we want to encourage you to get these podcasts, listen to them. The sermon notes are online. You should check them out. Like no other series that speaks to who we are, to our identity as a congregation and as a church. And this idea of 50-day people, it comes because the Feast of Pentecost happened 50 days after the Feast of Passover. And 2,000 years ago, it was during the Feast of Passover where Jesus died on the cross. And then the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days later, is where the church was birthed. It's where the church was born. That's where we pick up in Acts chapter Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. And so, so as a church, we've been asking the question, what does it mean to be a Pentecostal church in our modern-day world? What, what does that look like? Because many of us have been around Pentecostal churches or in Pentecostal churches or have heard that term used before, and, and it's not always positive. And we kind of open the series, kind of brainstorming together things that you've seen that have made you un uncomfortable. And so we've said, hey, it doesn't have to be that way. What, what, does, it, what does it truly mean? And so, so this, this series has been digging in. And so part of this series is believing for the impossible. And so we, we've, got, we've had a faith promise story to read every week. How awesome is that? Ever since we lost, launched the Faith Promise uh, Giving Campaign, it, if this is your home church, we're asking you to get one of those cards. If you're visiting, it's not for you. But if this is the church that you call home, get one of those cards and ask God to give you a number. And He's going he's gonna to give you a number. And then you believe by faith that He's going to provide that to you. And then you make a promise that you're going to give it to the initiative when He comes. You don't put your name on the card. It's not a pledge. We don't want to know who you are. We don't want to know what you give. And if God doesn't provide it, then you're free to walk away from it. Does that make sense? It's not an obligation. It's not an obligation. So listen to this story. Every week we've had a story. I'm 45 now. I have to wear these things on my face. Let's listen to this. This is when I started praying for the number that God wanted me to promise. For the faith promise, I was a bit nervous. Giving money to God. This is, this is a story someone shared with me. It's not mine. It says, giving money to God has never been an issue for me. Tithing is a practice that was in, instilled in me with the very first dollar I ever received as a child. Come on, that's training up your child in the way that they should go. Come on. However, my tithe and offering that I give is already figured into my budget, so I knew that my faith promise would have to be just that, a step of faith. So I prayed, and, and when I did, God gave me a number that would definitely require some faith. So I guess I should explain a bit. Last year, after going through my divorce, my income was reduced to less than half of what it was before, and I kept the house, so I found myself with all the same bills and less than half of the money. Then when January rolled around, I got the wonderful surprise that because I was now filing to pay my taxes as a single person, I was going to have to pay quite a bit more. I'm also a teacher, which means that I don't, I don't get paid over the summer, leaving me two months to rely upon God and whatever money I have in my savings account. So as the end of this summer draws near, I find my bank account getting to an all-time low. So I'll admit that the number that God gave me was a bit scary. Listen to what they write. you got to love honesty. In fact, I never wrote it down on one of the cards. 
because I knew that if I did, I would feel committed to give it, and I just didn't have it. Which even as I write this, I have to laugh, as though by not, me not writing it down, God might not know what he asked of me. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? Moving on, I was ecstatic when July rolled around and I was able to finally pay off my car and proudly shared with my friends and family this was a huge step for me in light of this past year's circumstances. Then on July 30th, while I was driving home from Life Group, a woman ran a red light as I was driving through an intersection, causing me to crash into her and total my newly paid off car. I know, I know. While my immediate reaction was one of tears, I quickly came to a place of peace, believing that God was in control and that he had a plan in all of this. My faith kicked in. That's a great statement, isn't it? My faith kicked in. There was nothing else that I could do but trust God. Oh, how he wants to bring us to moments like that. Within a few days of the accident, I received word that the other woman's insurance company was going to cover the expenses, and I received a check so that I wouldn't even have to pay my deductible out of my pocket, and the check that came in the mail was the exact amount of the faith promise that I had made. I know, come on! It's good! Even if God has to wreck your car, He's going to get your faith promise covered. Listen to this. You got, again, you got to love honesty. But I didn't give her the money right away. Because this is what I thought. I need this money to purchase my new car. right? Because this is how it happens, right? God moves, and then, and, and then there's temptation that comes to withhold it in your lack. I had no idea how much money the insurance company would give me for my car. I looked up the Blue Book value and talked to some, someone at the dealership where I purchased it. So I had a number in my head, and I was praying and hoping for I'm overwhelmed by God's faithfulness. It's powerful, isn't it? Even when we're not doing what we're supposed to, he still lavishes us with his loving grace. This week I heard from the insurance company and the amount that I'm receiving for my car is $1,500 over what I've been hoping for. In fact, it's only a couple of thousand less than the total amount that I paid to purchase the car four years ago. I was blown away. I know that God's hand was all was in all of this. He is my provider who is always looking out for my best interest. This week, I will be putting my full faith promise amount in the offering along with my pledge card. <laughs> or your faith promise card, as you call it. God is good. When he asks something of us, he always provides the means for us to do it. Come on, that's a good story, isn't it? So good. So we're asking you, as your faith promise story unfolds, that you would share that with us. As your faith promise story unfolds, that you give it to us. We'll leave your name out. Just, just send it by way of an email. Give us a call. Let us know what it is, and we'll have you write it out. But, but these are important stories to share because it stirs our faith. Because we begin to say, if God's going to do that for them, then certainly he's going to do it for me. He's going to do it for me. We believe that God is a God who still makes the impossible possible. Mark 10, 27 says, Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. And this is the verse that we've built this series upon, and it's going to be a verse that our church is built upon. And we hope that it's a verse that your life is built upon. That when people ask you about the City Life Church and what does the City Life Church believe, that one of the first things that comes out of your mouth is that we have an unshakable belief that God still makes the impossible possible. 
If there's any one statement that we could say articulates and communicates and expresses what it means to be a Pentecostal church is it means that we still believe that the God of this book is the God of today and he still moves in impossible ways. There should be an appetite that we have for hardship because we know that when we get into that place, that's when God does his best work. It's hard to want to be in the furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But because they were in that place, they got to walk with Christ in a way that few others ever will this side of heaven. I'm telling you that sometimes in our most difficult circumstances are the places we experience a revelation of who God is like nothing else on this earth. He still does impossible things. So this whole series has been digging into, when we look into the early church, what do we find? And in Acts 2, 41 through 47, we find what we're calling the list of 10 impossibilities. We're not going to read through this list. We've been throwing it up every week for people that may be visiting for the first time. And so it just gives you a glimpse of what we've been talking about. Next week, Pastor Justin, come on, is going to be talking about impossible favor. Then we're going to be finishing out the series this summer with impossible loyalty, impossible community. And then we're going to be doing the whole month of September after Labor Day weekend. But the whole rest of that month, we're going to do a a series on prayer that's just going to kind of round out this list of 10 impossibilities. We want to be a church that God could write and say these things were present at the City Life Church. Not just on a good day, right? Not just on an afternoon where they were all dialed in and had it just right, but these things characterize the church, the City Life Church. We, we, we want to be a church that's defined by all of these characteristics. We want these things to speak of the culture of who we are. So in this little mini-series, within the series, we've been talking about impossible worship. We started by talking out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, we find that Solomon was a person that had given himself over to the big three. So we'd like to do some giveaways here every week. So this is Kevin Tully's new, come on, CD, one by one. This was Kevin Tully right here, standing here, part of our worship team, just came out with his new CD. So we are unashamedly promoting him tonight. Come on, because we love him and he is one of our own. So, so somebody who's been at the City Life Church Less than three months. Let's say less than three months. And give me the big three that we've been talking. If you've been tracking with us in our series, we've been using that phrase, the big three, to refer to something. Oh, come on. What are they? Come on, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's good, John. That's good. All right, somebody tell me what book of the Bible Somebody six months or less, six months or less here at City Life. Yes, ma'am. No, but it's not Genesis. That's a good try, though. It's a good guess. Somebody else? Anybody else want to give it a shot? All right, we're going to give it to her anyways for having the courage to try. Come on. Nice. Come on, because we practice grace. It's in 1 John. It's in 1 John. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So we talked about how Solomon is someone who gave himself to the big three. So we had a sermon on that as part of this series as well. And because he gave himself to the big three, he ended up in a pretty desperate place. And he gives us this. If you could, could give a synopsis of the book of Ecclesiastes, it says you are desperate for meaning. He got that part right. The part that he got wrong, though, is he says, and are doomed to a life where meaning is impossible, but we don't believe that. Ecclesiastes is one of those books in the Bible that's given to us to help us to understand what not to do. 
This is what the rest of Scripture says. You're desperate for meaning. We know that to be true. But you're destined for a life where meaning overflows in worship. There is an ache deep inside of you and I that we feel every day that we wake up, that we are desperate to experience meaning. Why am I here? We want to experience a sense of purpose that is of divine origin. And one of the places that we experience this kind of meaning, come on, just like you already experienced it tonight, did you not? That during this time of worship together, as you begin to declare the glory of God, there should be a revelation that comes to you and says, this is part of the reason why God gave me breath was to stand in this moment and to declare His glory. So we spent some time looking at Revelation chapter 4, and we talked about how that place of worship is a a great picture for us to, to speak to us about the purpose and the meaning that comes to us in worship. And so all of that's in the podcast. All of that's in the podcast. So we're just kind of catching you up for the last point of this sermon, Impossible Worship. So two weeks ago, we talked about God watching. Because oftentimes we come to places where we can experience impossible worship. We can experience worship in a way that floods our hearts with with deep meaning, but we shrink back. So two weeks ago, we talked about how one of the reasons why we shrink back is because we know that God is watching. Hebrews chapter 4, right? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, but everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And we know all the things that we've done in our lives that we are ashamed of. We know that God knows all the things in our lives that we're ashamed of. And so we shrink back in places of worship when we should be pressing in because we're afraid that He's going to reject us. So we talked about that two weeks ago. So last week, we talked about this idea of me watching. That you're more concerned about the package than you are the presence of the person who's in the room, right? Why do they sing this song that way? Why are the chairs put together in this way? And why does that person have those shoes on with those pants, right? All the things that your humanity and your mind draws you away from. So we, all last week, we talked about being me watching, more focused on the package, more focused on the people in the room than the presence of God that's in the place. So tonight, this is where we're going to go tonight, these next 30 minutes or so with each other. There's others watching. One of the reasons why we shrink back is because when we step into a place of worship in a room like this, we know that some people are looking around and it makes us a little bit nervous. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. I want to pick up with verse 11. I'm going to actually read a little bit further than what the slide says, but... Let's start in verse 11. But when Cephas, this is Peter, Cephas is, is, is Aramaic. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him, this is Paul writing, to his face because he stood condemned. For he used to eat with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself. We turn to this text often together as a church because we suffer from the same problem. However, when they came, he withdrew himself and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone. You don't want a friend like Paul. I told Cephas in front. You want the friend that waits till after the service and talks to you in the parking lot. I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? He goes on to say in verse 15, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Come on. 
And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in him and not by works. So what's happening here? What's happening here is that, that, that Peter had a revelation that he is free from the practice of the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic Law. That's another sermon for another time, right? But he has the dream. He's in Joppa. He's up on the top. He's taking a nap. Like naps are sacred. They're referred to in the Bible all the time. So he's asleep. He has a vision. Right? It was during a nap, an afternoon nap, that, that, that Christianity was being born. They're free from the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic Law. But all of a sudden, Peter finds himself in a room where what we call are Judaizers. They are people that are Christ's followers, but they believe that in order to truly go to heaven, you've got to still practice everything that the Mosaic Law demands. And so when this group of people, that's called the Party of the Circumcision, came into the church where they were in Antioch, Peter saw them, right? And because he was concerned about them watching him, he withdrew from what he knew he was supposed to be doing. Because according to the Mosaic Law, if you were a Jewish person and you were eating with Gentiles, it would make you ceremonially unclean. And so Peter, being a leader, he was concerned, right? It's others watching. He was concerned about what others thought of him as they were watching him. He withdrew from what he knew he should do. And all of a sudden, because he was a leader, all of these other people were drawn away with him. And Paul stepped in and said, that's not right. Now, there's lots of different ways that we could go in this text, but it's especially poignant for us tonight because sometimes when we find ourselves in a church like this, this church is a new tradition for some of you. It's a new tradition. Just as it was in the early church, these, these new traditions that they were stepping into, they were breaking free from other traditions that had been sacred to them for centuries. And it is not easy to break free from traditions that you've cherished your whole life. And the traditions they were breaking free from weren't bad. They just, they weren't for them for their tomorrows. I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and then we went on to the Southern Baptist Church growing up, and then we end up in the Assemblies of God. So I entered my adult years in theological confusion. Right? New, new traditions. We have traditions at the City Life Church. We have traditions that we cherish here. But my, some of those traditions might be things that God calls us to walk away from in our tomorrows because they were traditions for yesterday. Think about Rose. I don't know if Rose is here tonight. Is Rose back there? From Grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church and coming here for the first time. This was very new for her. We are very different from the Greek Orthodox Church. But you know what? The Greek Orthodox Church loves Jesus just as much as we do. They love Jesus just as much as we do. But sometimes God calls us into new traditions. And it could be that some of those traditions are traditions that Rose holds dear to. And there's nothing wrong with holding dear to past traditions except when God is calling us to lay them down for new ones. And then, like it is in the text, it can become sin for us if the reason why we don't want to lay them down is because we're concerned about what other people will think. Dan Pothier from the Church of Christ, but he grew up Catholic. So if you have a chance to talk to Dan, he has an amazing story of how, what it was for him to, to go from the Catholic Church to Church of Christ, if that wasn't a big enough move for him, right? It, now he's here at the City Life Church. That's a, those are big shifts by way of tradition. Traditions are important. Traditions are good. All the traditions of the Old Testament, they had a time, they had a season, they had purpose. And there was a time and a place where if people were to lay them down, it was sin. But we can also find ourselves in places in our lives where the very traditions we hold onto become the sin because we're forsaking the new tradition that God is calling us into. 
So some of you here in a setting like this, you've never been a part of a service that's this expressive, that's this impassioned, that's this intense. Because it's not your tradition. But if God is speaking to your heart, whether it's at this church or another church like it, to leave the tradition that you once had and pick up a tradition like this, then we want to encourage your heart to give yourself to the call of God on your life. And don't hold on to your yesterday when God wants to give you a new tomorrow. And may it never be for any of us that the reason why we are reluctant to lay down former traditions is because we are afraid of what other people might think. Being an others watcher or afraid of what others are thinking of us as they are watching me or watching you can cause us like nothing else to shrink back in places of worship And if we would only step in, if we would only press in, there is a place of meeting that you will experience that will flood the very depth of your soul. So I remember when I was in my early 20s and I was attending this Assemblies of God church with my my family, with my parents. It's the church that I ended up making a vow of devotion to Christ in and ended up going on staff there. We were there for 17 years before coming here. Church has a sacred place in, in my life. But I remember when I first started attending there, I felt terribly awkward, terribly awkward. I wasn't used to being in an environment where people raised their hands or moved around or, or, or was, was, were, were that expressive. It made me feel uncomfortable. And the thought of me participating in that, oh, that was just an impossibility. You with me? That's another whole list of impossibilities. But I knew something inside of my heart as I looked around and I saw the sincerity of the people's hearts who were there. I saw the genuineness of the, of, the, of the people's expression in the room. And I saw them experiencing something of meaning and purpose that me and my own life was desperate to taste of. And so I just began to take small steps, just like some of you, right? If you're coming out of tradition that's very different from this, it's okay that you ease yourself in, right? The first, the first step might just be palms out. You could leave at the end of that service and say, oh, I did something tonight. (laughs) I went from. And then you do the double palm out. And then you'll get one to here, but only at a right angle. You can only make it to 90 degrees. You with me? There's small steps. The next thing you know, it's, it's this, right? Then maybe you're swaying a little bit. You with me? God's not into demeaning people. He's not about shaming people. And he understands that there's sometime a, a pace that, that we have to find that's maybe a little bit slower than maybe for some other people. And that's okay because everybody's different. The, the question is, are you laying down the traditions that God's asking you to lay down? And are you picking up the ones he's asking you to pick up? And are you trusting him along the way? Are you trusting him along the way? And may it be again that none of us would get hung up because we're just afraid what other people might think. And that was a big part of my problem, right? I was worshiping and I was taking some of those steps. I was in my early 20s and I'm there in the service and I'm, you know, I'm trying to take some small steps. And then all of a sudden you begin to think, well, maybe I'm not doing it right. Right? Maybe other people are going to be worshiping and looking around and saying, well, he's not holding his hands out the right way. Right? Nobody's thinking that. Right? 
That's just the devil whispering in your ear, trying to rob you of the goodness that God wants to fill your life with. All the things. I used to, right, I used to be terribly afraid that if I closed my eyes during worship, when I opened them again, that somehow the music would stop, everybody else would be seated, they would be on halfway through the announcements, and I'd be standing there, right, with an awkward expression on my face. But that's not going to happen to you. And if it does, you know what? We probably should have been right there with you. But you're not going to lose your sense of knowing what's going on in the room. You're not going to lose your sense of connectedness to the room. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes because you can get into trouble if you do do that. But, and some people use that as an excuse, which is why the Pentecostal church sometimes becomes troublesome. But that's not going to happen to you. You can close your eyes. You can, you can just begin to think about the words that are going on that screen the things that it represents to you in your own heart. And I am telling you, if you will give yourself to these moments, we're going to walk through a list in just a few minutes of all the ways that God talks about us using our physical bodies to step into places of worship. If you will, I'm just, if you will just take a chance, something inside of you will be awakened to his presence like nothing else ever before. 2 Samuel 6. Come on, you can take a left turn in your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Oh, I love this story. Come on, don't you love Scripture? It's just rich. 2 Samuel 6, beginning in 14, David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod, which is a, a priestly garment. It's made of linen. So just to give you a little background, what's happened here is the Ark of the Covenant, right, which they had in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, was, was not in Jerusalem anymore. It was at the house of Obed-Edom, and, and David went to get it. And there's a big story that surrounds that again, but that's another sermon for another time. But they finally, they've, they've got the Ark, and they're bringing it back into the city. It's the most sacred icon in all of Israel. And so they're bringing it back into the city, and there's this huge parade that's going on around it. And David's right in the midst of it. In fact, he's leading it. And with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod, and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with sounds of a ram's horn. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-L, right? Just for any Michaels in the room, don't feel self-conscious. His daughter Michael looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. All right, let's jump to verse 20. So when David returned home to bless his household. See, I, I tell my family that when I come home from work. I am here to bless you with my presence. To bless his household, Saul's daughter Michael came out to meet him. Right here it comes. Oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today, she said. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls, of his subjects, like a vulgar person would expose himself. So this is a good marriage lesson in marriage right here. This is the first moment of escalation, which we should not do. So David replied, Oh, I was dancing before the Lord, all right, who chose me over your father to be the king. Right. That's what not to do when having a discussion, right, with your wife. 
He said, I'm going to celebrate before the Lord, and I will humble myself even more, even humiliate myself if needed. I will be honored by the slave girls you spoke about, right? That's mistake number two, right? In Saul's daughter, listen to what it says. This is sobering. In Saul's daughter, Michael, had no child to the day of her death. Come on. Sometimes disobedience brings about serious consequences in our lives. It's a powerful story for us, what we're talking about tonight, this idea of, 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 of impossible worship and this idea of, of, of others watching. So I want to I talk about this text in a, in a couple of different ways. One is this. One of the reasons why Pentecostal churches can get so out of hand is because they use this text in an inappropriate way. And maybe you've been a part of a conversation like that before when you've been trying to love on someone who, who was just drawing too much attention to themselves. And, and oftentimes they'll turn to this story and say, hey, come on, I don't care about what man thinks. Like David, I'm just going to worship the Lord and I'm only going to be concerned about him. But this text is not about giving us permission to do whatever we want to do in a place of worship because that's not the context of the story. What this text is supposed to do is to give us permission to worship in a way that is in step with the crowd that we're a part of following the leader who's present. Because the piece that people forget is that David was the leader of the parade. And so he had a calling on his life to set the pace for the room. And then everybody else that was a part of that parade had a responsibility to follow his lead and to be in step with one another. And that's what we practice as a church here. We want to be expressive. We want to be intense. We want to be impassioned. But we're not ever supposed to be moving in the opposite direction of the rest of the crowd. We're not ever supposed to be the one that's louder than anybody else. We're not supposed to be the one that when everybody's dancing, that we're the one kneeling quietly. When everybody else is kneeling quietly, that we're dancing along the sides. This story is a story to, to invite us into a place where we understand how a community of people can step into a place of worship together. And the way a community steps into a place of worship together, it's like an orchestra. We find our sense of being in step with one another. Even for me personally, when I'm here doing our worship sets, I'm following Celeste Lee. I trust the gift of God in her life. I trust her ability to hear from the Lord. Right? I, I, when, when she's loud, I'm going to be loud with her. And when she's quiet, I'm going to be quiet with her. All of us, no matter what our title is, no matter what our office is, we have a responsibility to follow the leader in the moment. And when we give ourselves to that, what I think is a clearly biblical practice, then a church, even that is as expressive as ours, it never has to be one that's out of order. Because we're all committed to being in step with one another. Because we read a story like this, and we, right, we believe in what we call the full context of all of Scripture, the full counsel of Scripture, and we, we don't give up Philippians chapter 2, which talks about thinking of others as more highly than ourselves. We can step into a place of corporate worship and be free and be expressive and give ourselves fully to the moment while at the same time asking the question, how is my worship having an impact on the people around me? And if it's a distraction to other people around me, then I have a responsibility in a corporate setting to dial that back because I don't want to do anything that's going to draw someone's attention away from God and onto me. In a place of 
corporate worship in a place where we're in a crowd together. There should be something inside of us that says, I want to move with the flow of the room. And I want to follow the leader that God put there. It's a powerful story for us as well because I don't think, I don't think that Michael was judged by God because she got in an argument with her husband. I think that she was judged by God. This is my own personal interpretation. Because she didn't enter in herself. I think what we find through her complaint against David, it's really a confession of her own fear. I think what we find in, in her complaint against David is that, that, that she was saying, I'm an other's watcher. I'm more concerned about what other people might think of me, right? Because they're, they're a, a nation with kings are new to Israel. And if you remember, the reason why they wanted to be a king is because they wanted to be like what? They wanted to be like other nations. And in other nations, right, the aristocracy didn't mingle amongst the common people. So here's Michael. She's a wife of the king, right? She's excited about the idea of being a part of the new aristocracy. And she's concerned about what other nations might think if Israel, in its infancy with the establishing a new aristocracy, gives itself to such things. What will they think of our royalty? When we allow what others think to be more important to us than the tradition that God is calling us into, it is a dangerous line that we step into. Because Israel had a different kind of calling. Israel had a unique calling. Israel as a nation was supposed to be the nation in the world that brought a revelation of the one true God to everyone, and David understood that. David understood, hey, we're not supposed to be a royal family like everyone else. We have a sacred duty and a sacred trust to teach people how to step into places of expressive praise and worship, no matter what family we were born into, no matter how much money's in our checking account, no matter what title follows our name. And in that place, we can experience a depth of meaning like nothing else. Come on, Michael, let's do this together. Let's lead our country down this path. But she was another's watcher. And so she held back. Psalm 22, verse 3. This is an important verse. We're going to mess with some of your Pentecostal theology tonight. Can we do that? So many of you have heard the statement, God inhabits the praises of his people. Right? And where they get this verse from is different translations kind of render it that way. But I think the Amplified gets it the best way. Because the Amplified Bible writes it in the way that the rest of Scripture speaks to us about this same concept. Psalm 22.3 says, But you are holy, O you who dwell in the holy place where the praises of Israel are offered. This is an important verse for us as a church because we, we don't believe that God inhabits the praises of his people. Because that's based on a belief that God comes because we worship. But for us as a church, we worship because God has come. And those are two very different ways of thinking. You're not going to hear us, right, in our times of prayer, pre-service. God, oh, would you come, right? God is saying to us, I've been here from the foundations of the earth. I've been waiting on you, brother. I've been waiting on you. We believe in his presence. So you hear us saying things like worship awakens us to the presence of God that's already in the room. 
We don't believe that worship builds something that God tries to enter in. He calls us to a place of worship because he knows that it has a spiritual power to awaken the eternal part of who we are to his divine presence that's already in the room. We worship because God has already come. Psalm 32, I'm, just for you note takers, I'm not going to spend time on this, but Psalm 32 and Psalm 46 and Psalm 47 are some great psalms where you, where you see the word selah, which is a Hebrew word that's often translated interlude. But, but I think, for me, this is, again, my own personal interpretation, I think that means worship amongst yourselves. I think that, that the psalmist puts that in there, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because, because God knows that sometimes we step into a place of worship, and the worship that we're stepping into is, stirs us up so much that we just need to step into a place of free praise and just let something begin to well up out of our spirit and worship our Creator. For me, oftentimes, that's in a spiritual language. We talked about that in the series, Impossible Powers. Oftentimes, me pulling in other texts of Scripture, like in Revelation chapter 4, it happened tonight. You saw it with the worship team. There were times, and maybe you were thinking, I think they've forgotten the words to their song. No, that's a moment where we're saying, let's just worship amongst ourselves. Selah. Come on. You can shake up a, a bottle of water and nothing's going to happen, but that's not supposed to be our lives when we're in the presence of God. It should be like the soda can. God's shaking us up and something is just building and expanding inside of us and we just need a moment to step into free praise and let the words that are welling up inside of our heart just to begin to declare His goodness and just begin to declare His glory. And we want to be a church that helps you learn how to worship in that kind of tradition. Kevin's going to come back up. He's going to share a song with us in just a minute. We want this up here for you because we want you to know if this is a new tradition for you that we're just not making this up as we go along. It's important, isn't it? We don't want to be a church that's known for contemporary worship because there's nothing contemporary about it. It's about as ancient as it gets. The kind of worship that we step into, it's called psalmic worship. It's called Davidic worship. It's been around for thousands of years. 47.1, standing ovations. 47.1 talks about applause, dancing, shouting, lifting our hands in Timothy 2.8. Come on, singing, even quietness, right? Sometimes Psalms talks about being loud and boisterous, and the other times it asks us to step into places of, of quiet reflection. It talks about instruments. This is a good example of traditions. We're not, we're, we're not using harps and ram's horns anymore, right? You, you can still step into place of Davidic worship with the, the modern-day instruments that are available to us. And then in spiritual songs in Ephesians 5, 18 through 19, again, we talked about that in our sermon on impossible power. This idea of a spiritual language that can well up inside of us in moments where we just want to be free to express ourselves to God because the thoughts and the feelings that we have are just too big for earthly language. There's nothing more freeing than being able to step into a place of spiritual language because we're totally and completely unencumbered by earthly language and human intellect. Scripture says to you and I, if you'll give yourself to a moment of worship, you will experience meaning beyond measure. And so he gives us the life of David. He gives us the book of Psalms. 
He gives us story after story and verse after verse and text after text because the things that He calls us to do and the person that He calls us to be and the experiences that He longs for us to have, He doesn't dangle those out in front of us like a carrot that we can never reach, but He says, I will show you the way to get there. Psalm 119, that His Word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. He knows the ache for meaning that we have when we wake up because He created us to feel it because He Himself is the one who will satisfy it. And He says, if you would only press in and not shrink back, give yourself to a place of worship and I will flood the very depth of your soul with the meaning that nothing in this world could ever offer. Kevin, share the song with us. Sixty-one, uh, sixty-one, eight says that uh, <clears throat> I'll be the poet who sings your glory. Um, this is in the message version, and I'll live what I sing every day. And um, Pastor, I was talking about worshiping, and that doesn't just mean music, and it doesn't just mean um, coming to church. It's it's a daily, all day thing. Um, Every single one of us in here, we're, we're born to worship 24-7. And uh, this is a bit, uh, I wrote this song about a year ago, and um, I uh, just felt the need to to rededicate myself to this tonight. Um, been on a bit of a journey over the last couple months, and um, uh, God just put this song in my heart really while we were practicing, getting ready for the service today. <coughs> I had talked with Fred, and um, and I just wanted to share this with y'all. And um I just encourage everybody that um, to to be the poet um, that, that sings his glory um, and and live live what we sing every day. <laughs> 